During World War II, even people who did not go to the battlefields of Europe and the Pacific were expected to keep the war in mind by limiting their consumption of important commodities needed for the war effort. They were discouraged from going on trips that would consume gasoline and use up tires. If someone was seen wasting such products or even using them for personal needs, someone might have asked him or her, don't you know there's a war going on? Now, in truth, it was theoretically possible for a person in the United States not to know that there was a war going on. That is because the fighting was so far away on the other side of the vast ocean. Today, there is also a war going on. It is the greatest war in history. Yet many people are completely ignorant of it or refuse to believe it is real. Today, we will want to think about that war. So we are in Matthew and chapter 12 and starting in verse 22. Then one was brought to him, that is to Jesus, who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Let me pause there. So if you recall, in our previous passage, uh, Daniel was covering it. And uh, Jesus has uh, withdrawn away uh, from the synagogue where he was preaching and he healed a man with a withered hand. And uh, great multitudes followed Jesus and they brought to him many who were sick and Jesus healed them all. And so this is one of the persons who was brought to Jesus during that time. He was demon-possessed. Uh, demons are real. Uh, demon possession is real. And here was a man who was uh, controlled by a spirit being uh, who was uh, uh, himself uh, an enemy of God. So there's, there's two types of spirit beings. There's angels who are following God's will. They love God. They serve God. And there's demons Demons have, are also spirit beings created by God, like Satan, but they have chosen to rebel against God and their enemies of God. And one of these spirit beings, who is an enemy of God, uh, was controlling this person in such a way that the man, uh, not only his actions and thoughts were affected, but his, his uh, physical abilities to see and to speak were affected. The person couldn't see the person couldn't speak because of the level of control that the demon had over him. But Jesus healed him. He casts out the demons, and the blind man, the blind and mute man, both spoke and saw. Wonderful. A man released from demonic oppression, able to speak, able to see. No wonder that all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, uh, for all this time? Continuing on in verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons 
except by Belzebub, the ruler of the demons. Uh, the Pharisees, as you may recall from uh, earlier in this chapter, have set themselves completely against Jesus. They have been the spiritual leaders of Israel for perhaps a couple of hundred years, uh, and uh, Jesus uh, wasn't following them. He was uh, going about by another authority than they had, and he was performing miracles, and many people were turning away from following the Pharisees and were instead now following Jesus. And the, the Pharisees were upset at it, and so they've started attacking Jesus, trying to discredit him. And so in this particular place, uh, they are claiming that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub is another name for Satan. Literally, it means Lord of the Flies, but it's just another name uh, for Satan. And, and uh, the Pharisees were claiming Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, verse 25 says, But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. It says Jesus knew their thoughts. What does it mean? Well, he knew that uh, they didn't really believe that he was doing it by the, by the power of Satan, but they were just trying to attack his character. Um, this is called, uh, in a legal term, a slander. They were slandering uh, Jesus. Slander is a false statement which defames another person. What does defame mean? Defame means a false statement uh, purporting to be a fact, claiming to be a fact, publicizing it to other people, and uh, that fault amounting to some harm caused to the person or entity which is subject to the statement. I'm sorry, that sounds like a little bit of legal mumbo-jumbo. But in short, uh, in any court today, they would be convicted for a crime, for slandering. They had no basis for the accusation that uh, he was doing this by the power of Satan. It was attacking him and trying to discredit him uh, in public. Now, uh, Jesus will deal with this in the next two passages. So Jesus is not going to hold them blameless for this attack on his character. And in fact, the next passage has what uh, we call the unpardonable sin. And Jesus will equate what the Pharisees are doing to him in this passage as to the unpardonable sin. So this is very serious, what they're doing. Uh, but Jesus will deal with that in the next passage. Uh, but then Jesus continues to show that their accusation uh, against him is uh, illogical. It's illogical. Uh, and he uses this line that was uh, quoted uh, by... <laughs> 
by Lincoln uh, just uh, 150 years ago. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So the house you know, divided against itself will not stand is a, is a well-known phrase taken out of here. Uh, but uh, the point is, it doesn't make sense for Satan uh, to be attacking Satan. I was trying to think of an illustration for this. Perhaps it's too obvious to, to require an illustration, but uh, if we go back to World War II, during World War II, Germany conquered pretty much all of Europe. And uh, within Europe, you had certain resistance groups called partisans. And they would uh, fight against the German forces from within the zone of control. Uh, often they would uh, camp in a forest or find a hideout and will try to launch some attacks against uh, German forces. They were, they were generally uh, in a, ineffective or at least um, were not successful, they would often get hunted down and killed uh, for this effort. But let's imagine one of these groups of partisans in a forest in Europe, and uh, you have some leaders, some people who have come to leadership, and people are generally willing to submit to them, and they're waging their somewhat ineffective guerrilla warfare, uh, usually getting worse than they dealt. Uh, but one day, uh, an uh, American uh, GI shows up. You know, the tide is turning. Uh, the U American forces are, are perhaps have invaded uh, Europe, landed in Normandy. They haven't yet reached this particular area of Europe. So the partisans are still uh, stuck in the little forest. Maybe they don't have any radio com communication, so they don't really know what's happening in the big world. But uh, an American GI uh, drops down by parachute, and he has his uh, radio equipment with him, and he explains to them that he's come to save them. The, uh, the kingdom of the United States, or the, you know, the, the allies uh, are landed, they're close, they're able to, uh, to, to give them victory over the German forces. And uh, the, the, the rulers, the leaders, of this partisan group are not happy because everybody is starting to follow this American GI that landed and they're looking up to him and they want him to, to give them the orders of what to do. And so the, uh, the leaders try to discredit him. And, uh, and he, because he has his radio equipment, he's able to call in airstrikes. And there'll be a German force perhaps that's attacking their camp and he'd be able to use his radio and summon American bombers, and they would come and they would destroy the German force that was attacking the partisans. And, uh, and that would be evidence, right, that this guy really is who he says he is. But instead, the leader says, you know, he is doing this, he is defeating the German forces by the power of Hitler or Germany, you know. He's, he's, he's actually calling German airstrikes against German forces. That's how he's winning. Well, that would be crazy, right? I mean, why would Germany attack their own forces? They never would. It was evident that this GI was really connected to the Allies, and uh, he had the force of the Allies behind him in, in his warfare. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. You know, it doesn't make any sense. 
that I would be doing this, that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. Why would Satan fight against himself? And then he continues when he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Not only are they being illogical, they're being inconsistent. So most likely when he's saying the sons uh, of the Pharisees casting out demons, he's actually referring to disciples of the Pharisees, not necessarily their biological children. But the disciples of the Pharisees were casting out demons, or at least trying to. We know that casting out demons was something that other people were attempting to do at the time. Maybe sometime with success, I don't know. But the point was everybody regarded casting out of demons to be a good thing, right? And the people who would cast out demons were good people. Well, then why are you being inconsistent? If Jesus is casting out demons, he is doing something good. And he is a good person, right? By the same logic that they were teaching their disciples that it was good to cast out demons, they must respect Jesus casting out of demons as a good thing that shows that Jesus is a good person, at the very minimum, right? And yet they were not. So they were illogical and inconsistent in their attacks against Jesus. And Jesus will actually, like I said, he will deal with them directly in the next two passages over this accusation. Now Jesus completes uh, his thought with what is the correct conclusion people should take from the fact that I am casting out demons. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? And just so I don't forget it, the last verse of our passage, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me, scatters abroad. What's the logical conclusion <clears throat> when Jesus is casting out demons? Well, it's that he is casting it by the Spirit of God. Why? Because God is the one who is at war with Satan, right? Just like if this American GI in the forest in, in Europe is calling out strikes and destroying German forces, the logical conclusion is that he is fighting for the Allies because the Allies were the ones fighting against Germany. The fact that Jesus is attacking Satan or demons casting them out is evidence that Jesus is from God. God is the one who is at war with the demons. And also God is the one with the power to cast out demons. Really, there's no one else who has the power to cast out demons. So any, any successful... Um, Casting out of demons that ever happens really is by the power of God. And Jesus was casting out demons uh, left and right in the Gospels, really showing <clears throat> that he had the power of God. What does that mean? Well, if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, it means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this may have meant more to the Jews at the time than it would to the average person here because they've been waiting for the kingdom of God. They've, they've known about the fact that, that uh, there is a true God and he is all powerful. And yet, for some reason, he has allowed this world to come 
under the power of Satan. And that reason really is, is man's kind rebellion against God. And so things were bad for Israel. There were, there were problems in Israel. And so God promised to send the Messiah, someone who would deliver them from Satan. And Jesus demonstrating this power against, against demons, casting them out, is a sign that this is the opportunity. Now God, the power of God has come, and the opportunity to enter God's kingdom and to escape from Satan's kingdom has come. The opportunity for these partisans in the forest in Europe to be saved has arrived. The allies are here to save them. That's the logical conclusion. Now, uh, Jesus explains the details of what he was doing to some extent in what sounds like a parable in verse 29. So I thought we would just kind of go through it point by point, and make sure we understand it. <clears throat> he said, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So who is this person who is entering the strong man's house? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the one who is going to enter the strong man's house. Who is the strong man? The strong man is Satan. Uh, in Ephesians 2, uh, he is called the prince of the power of the air. And he is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Uh, in um, John 8, Jesus says to uh, the Jewish nations, around him. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. In 1 John 5, it says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we like it or not, Satan is ruling this world. He is the one with power, like, not unlike, Germany ruling over Europe during World War II. They conquered all of Europe. They had absolute power. They could go everywhere they, do, they wanted to go and do anything they wanted to do in Europe. They have asserted uh, control. And so Satan has control over this world. And that's why it is his house. Or how can one enter a strong man's house? This world is Satan's house. He is the ruler uh, of this world. What are Satan's goods? He says, or well, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? His goods are you and me. The people who live in this world are his goods because we are precious to God. We're not precious to Satan except as tools. He enjoys uh, separating us from God. He enjoys uh, knowing that the ones whom God loves are under his power. And by afflicting us, he in some way is getting back at God and hurting God. So we are Satan's goods, the ones that Jesus wants to plunder. Jesus wants to enter into this world and plunder us from Satan's house, bring us into 
his kingdom. Colossians uh, 1 says that he, Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness, that is Satan's power, and conveyed us into the kingdom, the kingdom of the Son of his love. This is a rescue operation that Jesus is after, taking us out of Satan's kingdom and bringing us into God's kingdom. And how can he do it? That's what Jesus is pointing out. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So this is, again, if you imagine going into somebody's house and taking all the precious possession of that person, how can you do it unless you first bind that person? You have to render them helpless. If you go into the house, don't do it, but you tie them up, gag them, take away their phone from them, then you could go in and take all the stuff in their house and not worry about it, right? But if you don't bind the strong man, you cannot uh, enter the strong man's house and plunder his good. And so God had to overcome Satan in order to save us out of Satan's kingdom. And what's the connection? Well, that is what Jesus is doing. He wants the Pharisees and the people around him to, to understand that his casting out of demons is demonstrating that his power over Satan and his ability to save. If Jesus couldn't get rid of demons, if he couldn't cast them out, how could he save us? But by casting them out, he's demonstrating the power over Satan that allows him to save a soul out of Satan's power and bringing them into God's kingdom. Now, ultimately, we realize that the disabling of Satan's power isn't just by God overcoming Satan by force. God is, of course, stronger than Satan. But the real power that Satan had to separate people from God was getting us to sin against God. What was it that led to him getting power over us? It was Adam and Eve rebelling against God in the Garden of Eden, right? When they sinned against God, they became separated from God. That's when Satan gained power over us. If we are in God's kingdom, Satan can have no power over us. But because we left God's kingdom by sinning against him, Satan gained the mastery over mankind. So we understand that in order for Satan to be rendered helpless, then our sins have to be dealt with. And that's what happens in Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus took all of our sins and, and, and dealt with them in full by paying the penalty for our sins. There was nothing left against us because Jesus paid it all. And that's why he can then say in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He disarmed, he took away their weapons. Satan and demons have no weapons against us because Jesus took care of the sin issue. Now there's nothing, there's nothing they can use against us. It was our sins that they could use to separate us from God. Or they could use the fact we were separated from God. They could have power over us. Now that Jesus took away our sin, he disarmed them. He took away the weapon. They have no power over us. And he say, it says he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it, in the cross. Jesus triumphed over Satan's power. Okay, uh, just one verse left, and then I have some uh, thoughts about application. But the last verse, verse 30, which I read already once, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. It's really a warning to the Pharisees. Now that Jesus is clearly explaining, look, there's a war going on between God and Satan and his demons. And it's really clear which side I am on. Which side are you on? Are you on my side, meaning God's side? Or are you against me? And so really you're on Satan's side. And they were the ones who claimed to be gathering, right? Because they thought, hey, you know, we're the religious teachers. We're helping people. We're teaching them about God. Well, Jesus is saying, you know what? If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering abroad. You're taking people away from God. You're not bringing them to God. So very serious warning here uh, to the Pharisees by Jesus. Okay, finally, some thoughts for today. Um, I, Remember when I was uh, in college, shortly after being saved, uh, playing a computer game all day long. I don't know if any of you have ever done it, <laughs> uh, but uh, basically morning till evening. And uh, the next day, I felt kind of bad about it. You know, maybe this wasn't the best use of time. But I had lunch with a Christian friend, and uh, she shared of some of the trials she was going through with her life or other people she knew were going with. And um, it was very evident to me that Satan was at work in their lives. All these problems, I could, I could really see Satan's hand, how Satan was using these to, to keep people away from God. And uh, I was convicted that here I was spending all day playing computer games uh, while Satan was busy, right? He was, still <laughs> he was still doing his thing. I was wasting my time. He wasn't wasting his. And it was kind of a, if you would, there's a war going on kind of wake-up call for me. Come on. Satan is actively working to, to keep people away from God, why are you spending all your time playing computer games and letting him uh, have a free, a free for all? Now, granted, I'm not the only person who can do something against Satan. There's other people. 
many believers in the world that could be serving, but if we all spend all day long playing computer games or be involved in other things, it's not just computer games, it could be various hobbies we have, uh, it could be a career, uh, there's lots of ways we could occupy our time not making a difference in people's lives. And that would be uh, the same thing. Don't you know there's a war going on? Right? People are perishing, dying without Christ in the world. Um, in 1 Peter 5, it says, Be sober, <clears throat> be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Satan is always at work, and not just to keep people away from God, so we know he does that, he tries to keep people from coming to know the Lord, but he also is trying to devour believers. And when I think of devouring believers, I think of discouraging us, <clears throat> making us uh, desert our work for the kingdom of God. We can serve God during this life at this time. And Satan doesn't want us to. And for him to devour a believer really means to bring a, deliver, a believer to a point of uselessness to God. Perhaps discouraged to the point that we're not effective in serving God. And it's not just you and me, it's our brothers and sisters in the world that Satan is seeking uh, to devour. And so the instruction by First Peter is to be sober, to be vigilant. Know that this is the truth. There is a war going on, and we shouldn't be uh, sleeping on the job, so to speak, <clears throat> and thinking that everything is fine because it's not. Second thought that I had, and last thought, uh, I called my grandmother yesterday. My grandmother is in her 90s, probably mid to late 90s. She doesn't actually know because uh, uh, her parents changed her birth date when they immigrated from Poland to the United States. But uh, she was a young adult during World War II. And uh, so I uh, called her to see what she remembers about what was it like in the United States when the war was going on in Europe. And really what I was after is, you know, what kind of deprivations did you have? You know, did you have to live on bread and water? You know, did you have to turn off the lights because you were trying to save? And she, the answer was no. That she felt that there were very few things she had to give up. Uh, during the war, there wasn't that much pressure. She said in many ways the war just did not seem real. <coughs> Excuse me, the war just didn't seem real to her because it was so far away. But she said it was actually good for her 
and other young women because it gave them opportunities to get into jobs that they were not able to get into before the war because you had men doing these jobs. Well, now the men were out fighting, and so they gave opportunities to women, young women, to come and do jobs that perhaps they wouldn't have been able to do uh, before then. So she looked at it as, for herself, it was mostly a positive experience. Granted, it was a terrible time for many, many people, and so you know, she wasn't happy that there was a war, but actually, for her personally, there were opportunities uh, as a result of the war. And I was thinking we could think about that for ourselves as well. We have opportunities. There's a war going on. We have opportunities to participate in the battle. And uh, those opportunities are to some extent listed for us in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, this is a well-known section about the armor of God. Paul says in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Okay, so Paul recognizes the same thing that Peter was, that we are fighting against spiritual enemies. The war is real. Satan and his demons are real and they are at work in this world. They're ruling this world. They're keeping people away from God. They're trying to discourage believers and bring them to uselessness. The war is real, but we have the armor of God. Now, usually, I look at this passage and I'm thinking of defense, okay? You know, I have this piece of armor, so I'll be safe, and, you know, Satan can't hurt me because of it. But I want to think about it this morning in the sense of opportunities of engaging the enemy, as opposed to how do I protect myself from the enemy, Verse 14, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. We have an opportunity to live a life based on the truth of God. Satan is trying to blindside the world and, and has all kinds of lies out there. Like all you need to be happy in life is have money. <laughs> right? But I can base my life on the truth of God. I don't need to base it on what Satan is teaching. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, I have the opportunity to live a life that reflects the character of Christ. That's what the breastplate of righteousness is, right? It's not the righteousness that's imputed to me when I trust Jesus for my salvation, because that righteousness I don't have to put on, right? That was given for me. You can't take it away because God put it on me. But I, I do have 
the opportunity to live it out, right? And to live a life that shines with the righteousness of Christ, a life that is a testimony to people around me, a life that's not susceptible to accusation of, of Satan. Verse 15, and having shod on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. I have the opportunity to bring this saving gospel to people, right? Jesus did the work to save people from, from hell, but I have the opportunity to participate in that work by bringing the message so more people can know about what Jesus did for them and can trust him for their salvation. I can participate. It's an opportunity in this warfare against Satan. Above all, taking the shield of faith, I have an opportunity to trust God for all of his promises to me, with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation. I have an opportunity to rejoice in the assurance of God's salvation. I don't have to worry about this life. Why not? Because I have a place in heaven prepared for me. That's the helmet of salvation. I have an opportunity to rejoice in that. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, I think of it, I have the opportunity to cut at the lies of Satan by using God's word. As Satan is trying to lie to me, or as Satan is lying to other people, we can draw out God's word and, and cut the lies, show what the truth is, what God really has to say about it. And finally, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I have an opportunity to help my brothers and sisters through prayer. Uh, people say that uh, as Roman, uh, sorry, as, uh, as, uh, that Paul used the illustration of, of a uh, Roman armor as he was uh, listing all these pieces of the armor of God. So the belt, the breastplate, the sword, the helmet, they're all part of the Roman armor. And Paul is, is using those as illustration of the armor of God that God gives us. But he has nothing for prayer. Because there's just, there, there was no equivalent in the Roman's armor to the power of prayer. And uh, someone suggested to me, well, you know, if this was written today, we could use... ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, as an illustration to prayer, because I can pray here, and a believer on the other side of the world can be affected by my prayer. The only, the only weapons that does that is an ICBM. Well, we have that uh, part of the, the armor of God at our disposal to pray for people Near and far, I think uh, one of the wonderful ways in which Calvary Bible Chapel has been coming through this uh, pandemic is our prayer meetings on Wednesday, where uh, really most of the saints will gather together and 
find out what's going on in each other's life and being able to pray uh, for one another. And uh, so that's uh, my challenge to you today. Remember, there's a war going on. And also remember that God has given us his armor so we can engage in the battle and engage successfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this account of the Lord Jesus and delivering this man from uh, demon possession, blindness, and, um, and uh, being a mute. And we recognize that uh, that same power, Lord, is at work uh, today to free people from the power of Satan and uh, give them uh, eyes to see you and your truth and a mouth to speak your praises. And we rejoice at your work in our lives. We recognize also our own weakness in uh, perceiving this battle that's around us because in many ways it's invisible and yet we see its effects all around us with uh, destroyed lives and people heading to an eternity without you. We ask, Lord, that you wake us up, help us engage in this battle so that uh, we could uh, uh, make an impact on the lives of others, make uh, an eternal difference in their lives and for your glory, for we ask it in your name. Amen.